Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We have got a great show for you this week. We're talking to Danielle Henderson, who was studying for her PhD in feminist theory a few years back when she started feeling a little burned out, which can happen to you. So for fun, she created a Tumblr page. Remember those? Uh, It was called Feminist Ryan Gosling, and it was basically what it sounds like. It was pictures of Ryan Gosling, the actor, combined with feminist theory. And it was a huge hit. These days, she's a TV writer. She's got a memoir out. It's titled The Ugly Cry. We're going to talk about that with Danielle. Plus, we've got some poetry from Kavi Akbar, who NPR dubbed poetry's number one cheerleader. Plus, as if all that weren't enough, we've got music from the one, the only, Deep Sea Diver. So that's the plan. Let's do a deep dive on Livewire this week, which I'll get started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey there, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going very well. It's very soggy around here in the Pacific Northwest, but I guess, you know. It's that time of year. Luckily, it's warm and dry here inside the radio show, and mm-hmm. it is time for us to take part in the long-running tradition of station location identification examination. Are you ready for that? Let's do it. All right. I'm going to give Elena some info on a place in the country where we're on the radio, and she's got to guess the place I'm talking about. It is the home, or it's the birthplace anyway, of the rapper Young Gravy. <laughs> I don't even know Old Gravy, which is the <laughs> oldest joke you could tell. You don't mess with Young Gravy on the TikTok? I honestly don't believe that Young Gravy is real. Uh, let me give you the hint that I think will give it to you. It's also the home of the Mayo Clinic. It's known as the Med City because of that. Oh, it's in uh, Minnesota. It, it uh, sure is. Rochester, Minnesota. It's exactly Rochester, Minnesota. That's where Young Gravy's from? <laughs> young, it's the Med City and also the birthplace of Young Gravy. Oh. <laughs> Oh, it'd be great if like Bob Dylan was also from there <laughs> and you, you, you pick Young We've Gravy. We've got the whole life cycle of popular music in America. We've got Bob Dylan all the way to Young Gravy there in Rochester. That's where we're on the radio on KZSE Radio in Rochester, Minnesota. So shout out to everybody listening there. Should we uh, get to the show? Let's do it. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's... <laughs> This week, poet Kava Akbar. Linguists teach us that 
the language that you speak, the, the languages that you learn sort of terraform your brain and shape the way that you think, right? And so my brain is sort of terraformed for a way of thinking that I kind of don't quite have access to. And writer Danielle Henderson. You know, I had a very low self-esteem, but I weirdly didn't have a lack of confidence. With music from Deep Sea Diver and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Loop Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone for tuning in from all over the country, including Rochester, Minnesota, birthplace of Young Gravy. We have a great show in store for you this week. We, of course, asked the Livewire listeners a question, which is, what is something you were better at as a child? kind of ties into some of our guests today. We're going to read those responses coming up later on in the show. In the meantime, we, of course, have to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what's the best news you heard all week? Ooh, hot news from Tucson, Arizona. (laughs) Hot news about cool nights at the hottest new nightclub in town. I don't know why I'm talking. I love this character, whoever it is you're exploring with. I'm into it. Well, you know, when I was a kid, nightclubs sounded so interesting to me because of the way that they were talked about uh, on the radio. Oh, my gosh. There was one called CI Shenanigans that I used to hear ads for. (laughs) I was, I think the health department closed it before I was of age, but man, I would have killed to go to CI Shenanigans. I mean, I think in both of our experiences, we grew up kind of thinking, you know, one day I'm going to go to a nightclub. Yeah. And that's kind of where this story begins with a mother and an activist named Chris Ann Black in Tucson, who is a disability advocate. She's a career accessibility manager. She also does a lot of great work making sure that folks experiencing homelessness can have hygiene resources. And she also has a four-year-old son named Zeus who has autism. And she's always thinking about ways in which she can make her community better for people on the margins. And she has come up with a really rocking way to do it. Her latest invention is Club Zeus, a nightclub for anybody 18 and up with a disability and their families who wants to come to the Tucson area and party down. Nice. (laughs) It seems like a really, really fun nightclub. They have an event the second Saturday of every month for the past few months. Folks show up, according to Chris Ann Black, decked out. DJ Shorty spins the hits. There's dancing, karaoke. One night there was speed dating. There's mocktails and pizza. There's games. And the whole kind of like energy behind this is that the folks who go are safe to be who they are, to explore, to socialize, to have a good time without any other contexts inhibiting that safety and that freedom. They have a lovely Instagram page that recently showcased photos from their Halloween costume contest. 125 people came to that meeting of Club Zeus. There's maybe going to be some pop-ups happening in other places in Arizona. And I just love this idea. It started a few months ago. Chrisanne, of course, had her son in mind. He's only four, but eventually she says he might want to have this kind of social experience. 
and she doesn't want him to have any barriers to any experience about which he feels curious. The main goal, she says, is for folks to leave Club Zeus feeling like a rock star. (laughs) This sounds like better than any nightclub I've actually been to, where you're mostly trying to not be yourself. Right. And... (laughs) Debate if it's worth paying $500 to have a table you can sit at because, you know, there's some kind of fancy. Like, if you've ever been to a club in Vegas, you will not leave there feeling like a rock star. You will leave there feeling way worse about yourself. You have to pay $500 to sit down at a table? Me and my friends accidentally ended up in one of those one time, and it was... It was a, a special ring of hell. I'd much rather go to Club Zeus. Yeah, the cover there is 10 bucks, and they take Cash App, so, uh, you know, much easier. The story that I saw this week that I thought was pretty great involved uh, a town called Kirkland, Washington, which is just outside of Seattle. It's the reason that like a lot of the jeans and vodka that people buy is called Kirkland, because it's also where they started Costco. Kirkland Pizza, yeah. Right? Well, <laughs> there is a restaurant that's been in Kirkland forever. It's called uh, Cafe Juanita. It's an Italian restaurant. And the owner of Cafe Juanita, a woman named Holly Smith, had been looking out from this restaurant, it's been there for like 22 years, at this creek that's right behind the restaurant. It's Juanita Creek. And in the 22 years that Holly Smith had been running this restaurant, she said she had seen a total of one salmon swim through the creek. One. One lonely, lost salmon. And so she decided that this was something that she wanted to work on, and so she reached out to a couple of local organizations, one called Adopt-A-Stream, and one called the King Conservation District. And she said, what can I do to fix up this like 100 feet of the bank of this stream that's part of my property? And so they wrote for some grants, they came out, they uh, did a bunch of stuff. They uh, tied a bunch of logs together, they chained these stumps up on the bank, uh, and then they put boulders and things in the water, which creates like um, like a rest stop for the fish. So fish get tired swimming and they need to kind of chill out somewhere. And if the river doesn't have any little kind of nooks and crannies. Where there's less current? Yeah. So they can kind of pull off in between these boulders and these logs. Also, the stumps on the shore, they stop erosion um, because when the river fills up with like silt and erosion, that's harder on the fish. Uh, These folks pulled out some invasive uh, plant species. This is the amazing part. So they worked on this for like a year doing all this different kind of remediation and stuff. The day that they finished up, this is what Holly Smith said. Uh, she goes, the moment Adopt-A-Stream left, they left on a Thursday morning, we came out there and there were 15 to 20 fish lined up. What? And she goes, I thought this is not real. Someone has stalked the stream with these fish. But it was just one of those things that made that much difference. Wow. And this is something that people can do. It doesn't have to be particularly ex- expensive. A lot of this particular creek is, is the bank is privately owned, so it actually falls on the people who own the property to kind of do this sort of stuff. But it sounds like a lot of it can be done fairly simply. It's just about taking the time Mm -hmm. and thinking about the fish. That's great. Have you ever seen a fish ladder before? Uh Uh-huh, sure. They used to have one in Grand Rapids, Michigan that was like where I took everyone who visited me. Because it's really fun to see, watch them climb stairs. <laughs> I mean, the Ballard Locks in Seattle, that fish ladder, it just gives you a real appreciation for the life of a fish. <laughs> it ain't easy out there for them. Thank goodness people are making it a little easier. Exactly. That's, I think that's the best news I've heard this week is some people are looking out for the fish. Best news. 
All right, uh, let's welcome our first guest on over to Livewire this week. He was crowned Poetry's number one cheerleader by NPR. His latest collection, Pilgrim Bell, received rave reviews from The New Yorker, Time Magazine, and The Washington Post. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Kavi Akbar, recorded in front of a live audience last year at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Um, this book is is really intriguing, and your use of language in it is really amazing. And then I found out that you were actually born in Iran, and that you spoke Farsi as your first language. Came over here at about two and a half, but your parents insisted on speaking English. How did that start to shape your kind of like relationship with language? Yeah, um, thank you for uh, for asking and for having me here. I'm so honored to be here with both of you. Um, yeah, my, when I came, when we came to America, uh, my brother is seven years older than I am, and so he was immediately thrust into American schools. And uh, English as a second language classes weren't then what they are now. You know, I mean, it's hard enough now, um, but back then he was just in a regular old fifth grade classroom. Wow. Um, and so, in an effort to acclimate him to school, they banned speaking Farsi in the household, which was my first language. Um, and so consequentially, we learned English really fast. And I mean, I became a poet. I became a writer. You know, it worked, right? Um, but I also sort of lost my relationship to Farsi or I lost that sort of fluency with Farsi, you know? Um, so it's weird, you know, linguists teach us that um, the language that you speak, the, the languages that you learn sort of terraform your brain and shape the way that you think, right? And so my brain is sort of terraformed for a way of thinking that I kind of don't quite have access to. Wow. Like the blueprint is Farsi. Right, But they right. built a different house on it. Right, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. Which is interesting. I mean, there's like a kind of defamiliarist potential there where I'm sort of like staring at everything a little bit cockeyed. But it gives you an amazing perspective. Yeah, yeah. It really I mean, comes through in the book. Yeah, I think that it foregrounded language being a medium. You know, my brother went to school to be an engineer and does computery stuff now. And But, you know, he loved Legos, you know, and he would stick Legos together. And I feel like language was my that, you know, in the exact same way that he would, like, get a, you know, make a spaceship with these 200 blocks and then he would turn it into, like, a house or vice versa, right? Like, I would get some language and I would be like, well, it says that it's supposed to be this, but actually it looks like this to me, you know? And, and it's highlighted the materiality of language. Were you writing poems like a little young person as you were I learning was, language? I was, I was, yeah. My mom has poems that I wrote from, you know, when I was four or five years old. Wow. My first poem, I, we lived all over the place, but I lived in Milwaukee for a spell. Um, and my first published poem was called A Packer Poem. Oh, uh, about the Green Bay Packers? <laughs> about the Green Bay Packers, yeah. It was published in the, uh, it was published in the local paper. Um, I, I don't remember a lot about the poem, but I remember the last line was because the fans and the players are brothers by Kava Akbar, second grade, you know, and Mrs. Miss, Mrs. Park's class, you know, so I, that, I, I really peaked early, you know. <laughs> that had to come in handy when you wrote poems as a five-year-old for that movie, <laughs> The Kindergarten Teacher, yeah. the Maggie Gyllenhaal movie. Yeah, yeah, so I, I wrote poems for as you said, with, with the poet Ocean Vong and the poet Dominique Townsend, um, we wrote poems for this movie, um, The Kindergarten Teacher, uh, which was um, directed by Sarah Colangelo and starring and produced by Maggie Gyllenhaal. It's and an that's about a very incredibly gifted child poet. Yeah, right? a and sort of precocious five-year-old poet, right. And so Ocean and I wrote the poems for this, like, 
five-year-old poetry prodigy. And it was a, it's a really interesting constraint, right, to write sort of like formally interesting poems using only vernacular that would be native to a five-year-old, right? right? Because it's not like we couldn't be out here being like, I'm ambiguous about whether I want the cheese crackers or the <laughs> peanut butter. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> you, know, like you, you have to use vernacular that's sort of native to a five-year-old's uh, idiom, right? But you also have to do sort of formally interesting literary poetry so it's kind of it's kind of like writing a sonnet or something you're writing within a received form right yeah this is live wire from prx we're listening to a conversation we had with kavi akbar back in 2021 about his poetry collection pilgrim bell uh, we've got to take a quick break but don't go anywhere we've got much more coming up hey elena Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing, that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, Okay. What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are listening to an interview that we conducted with the poet Kavi Akbar, recorded in front of a live audience in Portland, back in 2021. Take a listen. Can we uh, hear a poem from the book? I'm wondering if you could read uh, Reza's Restaurant, Chicago, 1997. Sure, yeah. Um, growing up in the Midwest, there weren't a lot of Iranian anythings around, and so we would take these yearly pilgrimages to the one Persian restaurant, like within a six-hour driving radius. Um, so this is Reza's Restaurant, Chicago, 1997. The waiters milled about, filling sumac shakers, clearing away plates of onion and radish. My father pointed to each person, whispered, Persian, about the old man with the silver beard, whispered, Arab, about the woman with the eye mole, Persian, the teenager pouring water, white, the man on the phone. I was eight, still soft as a thumb and amazed. I asked how he could possibly tell when they were all brown-skinned, dark-haired like us. Almost everyone in the restaurant looked like us. He smiled, a proud little smile, a warm nest of lips, said, it's easy, said, 
were just uglier. He returned to his lamb, but I was baffled, hardly touched my qayma. I had big glasses and bad teeth. I felt plenty Persian. When the woman with light eyes and blonde brown hair left our check, my father looked at me. I said, Arab? He shook his head, laughed. We drove home. I grew up. It took years to put together what my father meant that day. My father, who listened exclusively to the Rolling Stones, who called the Beatles a band for girls. My father, who wore only black, even around the house, whose umbrella made it rain, whose arms could cut chicken wire and make stew and bulged with old farm scars. My father, my father, my father built the world. The first sound I ever heard was his voice whispering whispering the azan in my right ear. I didn't need anything else. My father cherished that we were ugly, and so being ugly was blessed. I smiled with all my teeth. It's Kaveh Akbar. Wow. Was that a, a, a big part of your childhood growing up in the U.S., but being uh, Iranian, the sense of who was and wasn't like you? Yeah, and it's, and it's wild because now I have that. You know, like now I have that sort of like sonar, you know, like I'm like, oh, they're Jordanian and they're Yemeni and, you know, and, and like they're Iranian, you know, like I can really like sense it. And I don't know what it is. And it really took me a long time to unpack. You know, he said they're just uglier. Uh, and, you know, me being like a sort of self-conscious little kid, I was like, oh, well, that sucks, <laughs> you know, like, that sucks for me, you know. But the sort of ugliness was like, um, when you talk about gratitude made wise by having known loss, you know, which I think that we've all experienced a lot of in these past 18 months, it's that sort of ugliness, you know, like, it's almost like a weariness or, you know, there, there's just like a sort of granularity uh, or, or there's like a grain in the facial. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to talk about it, but I get it, you know. And it makes complete sense to me that, like, he who, um, you know, thought Mick Jagger was the coolest person on the planet Earth, but, like, you know, thought Paul McCartney was, like, you know, not for him. You know, like, like it makes sense to me that this would be what he valorized. As a very, very self-conscious kid, it took a long time to sort of settle into embracing that sort of ugliness, like what he was calling ugliness. Uh, this book is titled Pilgrim Bell, and I think there's, like, six poems that are, that are the poems themselves are titled Pilgrim Bell... Why did you choose to do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's sort of like the ringing of a bell, right? Like, it's, it, it reverberates. Um, there's something about the bell that interests me. Just broadly speaking, a bell is like a sort of spiritual technology that moves from the weight of a human body. You know, you pull the rope and the bell sort of clangs, right? And it makes this sound. It's a spiritual sound, right? It's like a call to pray. It's a call to worship. It's whatever that may be, right? But it's, it's the heft of the human body that makes it move, right? And sometimes, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but like if you've ever like tugged on one of those really old bells, it'll, it'll actually lift you up. That, that was really interesting to me when I'm thinking about poetry as a kind of spiritual technology that might thin the partition between me and whatever the divine that I might hope to address with it might be, whether that divine is like a capital G God or my dad or my country or my beloved or my loneliness or justice or, you know, whatever, whatever that divine might be in any given iteration. I think that the technology of the poem helps thin that partition for me. When you were talking about the body, it made me think about those of us who are here and got to see you reading the poem. That poem was in your body. Like there was a, there was a, a rotational force to reciting it, not just your voice. 
but a poetry book, the book that I read in order to come here, I, I didn't have that experience. You know, I, I read that poem as this still, you know, typefaced thing. So how do you make the transference from having this poem that sort of lives in your body to the page, or is it like vice versa? Like you put it on the page and then you find a place for it in your body. Yeah, that's such a beautiful and perceptive question, and one that I don't know that I have. I mean, that's a very sort of here be dragons kind of question. You know, I wish. Yeah. I mean, I could sort of, I could sort of, you know, lay some language. This is the part it. of the show where I pretend I know what everyone's talking about. <laughs> 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 me too. Me too. Um, no, truly. Um, but you know, like, like you're literate, right? Like you're capable of like, I wrote this book. I can hand it to you, and you can read these poems, and I can read out loud the poems in your book, right? But um, but the reason that we ask the person who wrote the poem to read them out loud is that you're hoping that they might be able to connect with some of the catalytic energy that brought the poem into the world in the first place. Right, like a band. Like exactly, exactly, band. right? Yeah. Like, like we can all sing Let It Be, right? But when you hear, I don't know why I'm stuck mm. on this like Beatles thing, but, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, like we can all sing this song, right? But like there's, there's like a timber in the voice of the person who wrote it right, that allows them to access something in the catalytic experience of having written that, right? And so, like, there's something in, like, there's something in me reading this poem that, you know, if the reading is optimal, allows me to reconnect with whatever that spark was that kind of ignited the poem's entrance into the world. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, could we actually get another poem from the yeah. book? Could you uh, read uh, How Prayer Works? Yeah, yeah. Um, How Prayer Works. Tucked away in our tiny bedroom, so near each other, the edge of my prayer rug covered the edge of his. My brother and I prayed. We were 18 and 11, maybe, or 19 and 12. He was back from college where he built his own computer and girls kissed him on the mouth. I was barely anything, just wanted to be left alone to read and watch The Simpsons. We prayed together as we had done thousands of times, rushing ablutions over the sink, laying our jonamazes out toward the window facing the elm, which one summer held an actual crow's nest full of baby crows, fuzzy black beak fruit. They were miracles we did not think to treasure. My brother and I hurried through sloppy postures of praise, quiet as the light pooling around us. The room was so small, our twin bed took up nearly all of it. And as my brother, tall and endless, moved to kneel, his foot caught the coiled brass doorstop, which issued forth a loud brong. The noise crashed around the room like a long, wet bullet shredding through porcelain. My brother bit back a smirk, and I tried to stifle a snort, but solemnity ignored our pleas. We erupted, laughter quaking out our faces into our bodies and through the floor. We were hopeless, laughing at our laughing, our glee, an infinite rope fraying off in every direction. It's not that we forgot God or the martyrs or the prophet's holy word. Quite the opposite, in fact, we were boys built to love what was right in front of our faces. My brother and I draped across each other, laughing tears into our prayer rugs. Kaveh Akbar, reading from Pilgrim Bell. Uh, 
I think NPR described you as poetry's number one cheerleader <laughs> because you started this really great poetry website and, and you wrote a poetry column uh, for the Paris Review. I guess I'm curious, why does poetry need a cheerleader? Like, you never hear someone as fiction's number one cheerleader. No, you don't. Like, no. the reaction in this room to you reading that is as powerful as any reaction we get for any reading. And yet poetry is this thing where it's like, Everyone's really hoping good things for poetry. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. To be honest, I don't really know what that is either. I think poetry's doing just fine. Um, you know, the earliest attributable author in human literature is Enhidwana, who wrote in 2300 BCE, um, which means that for 43 centuries it's been doing just fine. And it will, you know, and it has existed millennia before me, and it will continue long after the last person has forgotten my name. So I don't, I don't know what that is. That sort of like, you know, I used to be a middle school teacher, and it was the same sort of like, oh, that's so good of you, you know, like like that sort of like kind of weird condescension. And um, I will say that it is a profound privilege to be able to be of service to that which I love best in this world, which is poetry. Um, I think that that's a great way to spend a life is sort of joyfully serving that which you love best. But um, but yeah, I mean, if, if I disappeared from the face of the earth, poetry would be just fine. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> well, we hope you don't disappear too soon because this is a great book and we look forward to the next one. It's Pilgrim Bell by Kaveh Akbar. Thanks for coming on Live. Thanks so much, Luke. Thanks so much, Luke. That was Kavi Akbar right here on Livewire. His collection of poems, Pilgrim Bell, is available now. And since we last spoke to Kavi, he's also edited a book of poetry called The Penguin's Book of Spiritual Verse, 110 Poets on the Divine. So make sure to check that out. Hey, special thanks this episode to Donald Mason of Vancouver, Washington, and Toby Fitch of Portland, Oregon. Donald and Toby are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting our show with a donation each month, which makes a huge difference here because it's how we actually can keep doing it. It's critical, the support from folks like Toby and Donald. So a big thanks to both of them for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we ask our listeners a question. This week we asked, what's something you were better at as a child? Elena has been collecting up those responses. What are you seeing? <laughs> I love this one from Tracy. Tracy says, I used to hustle all the neighbors by selling them my quote unquote artwork. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> that would go over well now. <laughs> There are a lot of kid scams like that. Like my sisters would always put on plays, but then they would charge admission and also attendance was mandatory, which just felt <laughs> like kind of a rub. I used to charge people to let me take their dogs over to my house. We didn't have a dog, so I could put on a <laughs> dog show with them. <laughs> and then I just like have a bunch of dogs in my house and my mom would come home and be like, you know, you're fired from being my child. <laughs> All right, what's another thing that one of our uh, listeners were better at as children? <laughs> this one is pretty fabulous from Dana. Dana says, I could do an impression of a kitten meowing so realistically that it fooled our cats and our German shepherd. They would look for the kitten, but if I try it now, it kills my voice for two hours. <laughs> I just love how specific that is. It also sounds like maybe this was not that long ago uh, in the past if we're dealing with the same pets here. So <laughs> that's a, that's a, I think a really useful skill, you know, 
I talk incessantly on the show about my cat. And if I could create the sound of another cat so as to like distract her when she's attacking me or just sort of, I don't know, get her interested in, in something, that would be really useful. I don't have that ability though. You ever tried to hiss at her? No, I tried blowing on her face like a baby. You know how you make a baby stop crying with that? Also does not work for the no. record. No. <laughs> All right, what's uh, one last thing that one of our listeners was better at when they were younger? All right, I'm with Alicia on this one. Alicia, as a kid, was better at making mixtapes. It was harder because it was analog, and the stakes were higher, but what a rush to fit that one last song in before the tape ran out. Spotify has endless possibilities, and indecision gets me every time. Oh, I always had like my killer track too, you know, like, oh, oh this yeah. is the ending, the goofball track and have to remember like what songs I put on the last mixtape. And then you got to hand write the little card that goes inside the cassette. <laughs> I was never that thoughtful about it. I was the person just trying to record the song off the radio that I liked. So there'd always be like three seconds of the DJ and then like the beginning of a like auto dealership ad at the end of it. Like it was, I was pretty sloppy with my mixed tapery, but I sure do miss that. I mean, that was a very fun thing to get to be a part of. Yeah. And receiving one, was there anything better? It was a real love language back in the day. All right. Thanks to everybody who sent in a response to our listener question. We've got one coming up for next week's show, which we will talk about at the end of today's episode. In the meantime, though, let's bring our next guest on over. She's a television writer and creator of the very popular feminist Ryan Gosling Tumblr page. The Associated Press called her latest book, it's a memoir, it's called The Ugly Cry, equal parts hilarious and heartbreaking as it examines the complexity of identity, family, childhood, and independence. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Danielle Henderson, recorded as part of last year's Portland Book Festival. This book is uh, is really incredible, Danielle. Um, it, it's it's so moving and it's also uh, so funny because your voice is so is so great and kind of inimitable in it. If we're going to sort of talk about the themes of of love and loss, though, I guess in this book the kind of loss part is the the loss of your mother when you were a child. Not that she died, but that she kind of abandoned you and your brother. And then the the love part would be your grandmother, uh, who is really the central character in the book, aside from you, I guess, and had a really a unique grandmotherly manner, <laughs> her way of showing love or, or like not seeming to show it. Can you kind of like describe yeah. her personality? Um, it is, it's completely accurate and completely okay to point out that I, I am not the star of my own memoir. She absolutely <laughs> is. Um, she is the toughest person I've ever met. Um, she's a little bit of a maniac. She loves horror movies. Um, she is, she's fiercely always been exactly who she is and encouraged me to do the same and kind of didn't let me rest on my laurels at all. Um, and even though she didn't quite understand fully what I was experiencing as a child, um, she was a very steady hand in my, in my life. And um, I love her. I love her a lot. <laughs> um, she's 88 now and uh, she has dementia. And uh, I just bought a house and moved home so that she could live with me. So wow. um yeah, I bought a little farm. I'm, I see that on Twitter, and we need more videos. I just saw a video of you dragging a log through a field, <laughs> which was like a, it was like a moment of zen. So if you could start to update the content, that would really be awesome, Danielle. You got it. I mean, it's winter, so that's happening on a regular basis now. But um, yeah, she really um, she stepped in in a way that I didn't 
know that I needed and I had never seen before. So when I was growing up, it felt like wildly out of place to have mm -hmm. um, my grandmother be my primary parent, but also to be again, like, like borderline insane. <laughs> <laughs> she is a wild one. And she, I think had to learn a lot of lessons herself and how to survive mm -hmm. in the world. Um, and the way that she passed them down to me was kind of weird, but they were completely necessary and allowed me to be a fully realized and totally independent person way before most people I knew. I love in the book when you call her the love of your life. And it was great to hear all these moments where, you know, even though it's kind of the 90s, your parental figure is letting you own your body. You know, you shave your head. She's all right with it, even though she gives you a lot of sass about it. And <laughs> <laughs> what kinds of things do you think you're sort of still carrying from the upbringing from this incredibly iconoclastic figure? I think it is exactly that kind of thing where I, I, I fully live and inhabit my body because I've always had, um, from her pers from from that perspective, I've always had control over what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I remember saying, um, and I did include this story in the book, but when I was very young, like you know, seven years old, I, we were walking to school, and I told her I didn't want to have kids, and um, she was like, "What are you talking about? What do you even know about kids?" And I'm like, "Absolutely not. I'm not doing this." Um, and she never pushed me. She never pushed me. Wow. And she, there are a lot of people I know who. Um, decided they didn't want children and their families were not okay with that decision. But my family never uh, made me feel bad about that. And, um, you know, yeah, there's things like the tattoos and, and stuff, stuff that I've done that are, I later regretted and maybe should have listened to some of that advice. <laughs> you know, I had a very low self-esteem, but I weirdly didn't have a lack of confidence. Mm -hmm. And it's a strange mix, mm -hmm. very strange friction to live with. Um, but I, I knew that it was okay and maybe even better for me to be who I wanted to be, even if it was out of place and out of step with the world most, most of the time. I'm curious, you know, your grandmother was somebody who seems, at least the way that you write about her, in a way deeply, I don't want to say not sympathetic, but she just seemed to not be uh, somebody who was overly coddling of you or, 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 or demonstrative in this, what we think of as the grandmotherly way. She had a really different vibe. Do you think some of that was to mask the fact that she felt a lot of things really deeply, but it was just felt more tolerable for her to kind of just be tough on you? I do think so, um, I, and and she was mean. Maybe I was trying to sugarcoat it. I mean, she says some pretty mean things to you in the book. She was flat out mean and often cruel. Like, I was really trying to kind of soft pedal it there and I maybe went too far. I appreciate that diplomacy, but no, she was really mean. And what's bizarre is that now she's in this space where, you know, because of her dementia, she regresses a lot and there's a lot of emotional fluctuation in her day. And she's so much more more vulnerable than she's ever been. She didn't want us, you know, her kids, her grandkids, she didn't want any of us to grow up in a world where we felt like we had to believe any of the, the racism that was being thrown at us. And she wanted us to be smart and strong and capable. And I think that her way of doing that was to try to fortify that emotional life and try to make it crystal clear that, you know, you are who you depend on. And if you, you have to clean your side of the street and you have to keep yourself um, in check because the world won't do it for you, which is a heartbreaking lesson to learn as a kid. I wish I had a few more years before I learned that lesson, um, but it was accurate. It was really true. And I think, again, it set me on a path to um, self-sufficiency that I, that I appreciate for, for sure.
Uh, most of your childhood was spent in Warwick, New York, or at least the, a lot of the parts you write about in this book, where you, as a black person, were very much in the minority. What I thought was interesting about this memoir, though, is certainly you have some stories in there of really awful things happening and other ways that you were sort of othered. But I also kind of feel like race did your experience as a black person didn't seem to be the most central part of the book or at least the only part of the book. Did I read that right? Like, how did you want that to fit into what you were doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's it's, it's a, a kind of a... Um... I don't want to say it's a flaw that I have, but I'm I'm very quick to always say, well, p- other people have it worse than I did. You know, like I don't like to to I don't ever want to be the mouthpiece or the spokesperson for a particular kind of experience or emotion because other people feel things more deeply and have deeper issues than I've had. However, um, my race in this town and growing up in a town where I was so distinctly othered. Um, felt made me feel powerless and i didn't in order to kind of regain some of my power and regain some of my own um you know my my ability to kind of connect with my own race i have i had to reframe my own narrative a little bit um in my life and so when it came to writing this book i realized that the things that affected me and this again is not to say racism didn't affect me deeply it absolutely did and continues to um but I really wanted to focus more on the, the kind of stories I've never really read before, which is, you know, the, a young black girl who has depression and who has a different family structure and who has other things contributing to that. And, you know, racism is something that just contributes to that. So I, I tended to focus more on um, those other elements because it's, it's a story that I hadn't seen before that I was interested in. Uh, I think it's interesting that you have become a successful TV writer and somebody who's really known for your ability to kind of blend pop culture and academic criticism with feminist Ryan Gosling. When the I, maybe the anecdote that was most one of the more powerful anecdotes in the book to me was trying to watch TV when you were a kid and your mom coming home and opening the door and going, were you watching TV? And you say, no. And then she goes and feels the back of the TV because that was exactly the move my dad, Walter Burbank, would always do. Same. And that was so universal to me. It's it's interesting that even though there were were rules around using the electricity when the adults weren't there and stuff like that, it sounds like pop culture was still a hugely important part of your life as as a kid growing up. What did it mean to you and what did it do for you? Absolutely huge. And I think, again, that's something that my family cultivated within me because music, first and foremost, was a very important part of my family structure. You know, getting together on a Saturday, cleaning the house, you put the Donna Summer album on, mm-hmm. and then I'm looking at the whole album cover and wondering what's going on. And <laughs> it's, it was a huge part of my family life to have music be everywhere. And um, I didn't learn this fact until I was in my my mid, mid-30s, um, but my great-grandfather played piano during the, the Harlem Renaissance, and he was a big jazz pianist, and he um, was engaged to Billie Holiday and toured with Billie Holiday. So we put on these jazz records and, you know, nobody said anything. <laughs> but now I have, I have a couple of his albums. Yeah, that was kind of like my entry point. But also because my grandmother loves movies, she would do anything to make sure that she could watch whatever movies she wanted. And we just got the, ben- the, the benefit of that. So we always had HBO, we always had MTV. Um, And she, I think that was kind of the way that she related to the modern world. So we would watch MTV together and she didn't like any of it, but it was how (laughs) she kind of related to to what was going on in the world. Um, So I was really free to develop my own pop culture identity. Um, 
so yeah, I think it, it was kind of great that that I had that experience because pop culture saved my life when I was a kid. You know, I write very deeply about the magazine Sassy. Um, and it's because it really did. I mean, it was, it's hard to convey to people who now have the internet at their fingertips. But when you're a little weird black kid in Warwick, New York, and it means the world to open a magazine and see people discussing the things that are interesting to you, who look like you, who um, encourage you and support you. So I think that pop culture became a big part of my love language, you know, like for, my, for myself. And I have always been deeply entrenched in it. Could not tell you anything happening recently. <laughs> like I've now, I've, I've crossed over. I feel like I've uh -huh. gone to the shadow land where, you know, somebody will mention uh, an actor in a movie and I'm like, huh? Right. What? <laughs> like, I have no idea who anybody is anymore. Um, we've already mentioned it a few times, but for the, you know, 10 people who aren't aware of, of sort of what it is, what is the uh, feminist Ryan Gosling blog and then book? Like, what, what were you seeking to do there? Um, I was seeking to survive my my master's degree program, uh, <laughs> uh, which was so heavily theoretical and not fun at all. And um, it was my homework. So I would read these theories and read these, you know, theorists and want to remember them and try to remember them. And I just wanted to have some fun with it. Uh, so I created a Tumblr and, you know, Ryan Gosling was kind of in the zeitgeist. And um, I just made like flashcards for myself. And it genuinely took off overnight. It was on Jezebel the next day. I was coming home from the, mm. the farmer's market on the bus and my <laughs> phone was kind of blowing up. I'm like, what's going on? And somebody hurt, what's happening? And every, my friend's kind of, you're on Jezebel, oh my God. <laughs> but I mean, would it be overstating to say that sort of changed the course of your life? I mean, otherwise you'd be a professor somewhere teaching, you know, maybe gender studies or something like that? Well, that was part of the reason that I did, um, I jumped at the chance to turn it into a book, which I wrote over my first winter break, um, because I knew I'd have a calling card if I did that. If it stayed on the internet, it would just kind of disappear. But if I had a book, I could, you know, start to make some headway with it. And um, I did want to teach. I, I wanted to be a, an academic. And I, I um, applied and got into uh, quite a few doctoral programs. And I chose one that wasn't really a good fit in a place that I didn't really love. So I left after the first semester, but I was able to continue to use that book to get freelance writing work. And that definitely changed my life um, because my television agents found me through my freelance writing work mm. about television. Well, we are, we're very happy that you ended up where you ended up, Danielle, because the writing is amazing. And uh, this uh, memoir, The Ugly Cry by Danielle Henderson is a, a must read. Thank you for the incredible questions and for guiding me in this wonderful interview. I really, really had fun. That was Danielle Henderson right here on Livewire. Uh, that interview was recorded as part of the Portland Book Festival. Danielle's book, The Ugly Cry, is available now. And just an update on what she's been up to. The TV series, The Other Black Girl, which Danielle is the showrunner for, was recently picked up by Hulu. So make sure to keep an eye out for that. This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We've got to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. 
Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portalt.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. All right, before we get to our music for this week, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking to writer and Washington Post reporter Casey Parks about her book, Diary of a Misfit. Now, in it, uh, she dives into the mystery of a stranger's past, and she ends up reckoning with her own sexuality, her Southern identity, and her relationship with her mother, who is, let me just tell you, a real character. Uh, It's an incredible book, and we had an amazing conversation with Casey. Very excited for you to hear that. Then we're going to hear some music from the incredible singer-songwriter Thunderstorm Artise. And, as always, we're going to be looking to get your answer to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's episode? We want to know, what is a mystery that you're still trying to solve? Mm. I was very into the Hardy Boys and Encyclopedia Brown as a kid. I really thought I was going to be solving more mysteries as an adult, to be honest with you. Yeah, me too. I have no clubhouse. No. <laughs> I have no, there are no local mysteries that, that anyone's asked me to work on. So I guess we'll want to hear what the listeners are still working on themselves. If you have an answer to that question, send it on in via Twitter or Facebook. We are over at Livewire Radio. All right. Our musical guest this hour is a Seattle rock band that has received acclaim for their power and presence, also for their larger-than-life guitar hooks. Their third full-length album, Impossible Weight, is out now. Take a listen to this. It's Deep Sea Diver performing one of our live shows at Revolution Hall right here in Portland. Hello. Hello, hello. Nice to see you all. Nice to see you again. Um, I read, uh, uh, Jessica, a, a magazine piece about you where they called you a quiet giant of indie music. Ooh. How does that? It's one of the nicer things. Really? <laughs> no, I don't know what the quiet part means. But yeah, that's what I was wondering about. Have you been just quietly, uh, you know, a giant force in indie music? <laughs> um, not by choice, but... <laughs> I mean, it is interesting, though, because like looking at your bio and all of the things that you've been involved with, along with Deep Sea Diver and Beck and The Shins, and you've really kind of seen it all in the music industry. You feel like that's... That experience has been good for you fronting this band and kind of knowing the industry? Absolutely. I think kind of playing with all of those people, like by osmosis, I just kind of just like want to soak everything in and and implement certain things with songwriting and like how I perform and how I can push myself in the band. And so it's been so beneficial to play with other people. Yeah. What song are we going to hear? Impossible Weight, the title track. All right. Well, this is Deep Sea Diver here on Livewire. Stay. 
That was Deep Sea Diver. Their latest album is Impossible Weight and is out and available now. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Kavi Akbar, Danielle Henderson, and Deep Sea Diver. Special thanks this week to Amanda Bullock and the Portland Book Festival. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. And our production fellow is Tunvi Kumar. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer, and our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Donald Mason of Vancouver, Washington, and Toby Fitch of Portland, Oregon. Toby also happens to be a member of our board and an all-around lovely human being. 
For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.